0: Before we get to today's headlines, we're excited to invite you all to dig into bonus content, engage with the Murder Minute community, and talk to show creators on Himalaya Plus. Download the Himalaya app to get these perks and early access to episodes. The first 500 subscribers will be entered to win a $500 gift card. Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of the Beast of Bastille. But first, your true crime headlines. A high school football player has pled guilty to murdering a classmate who was pregnant with his child. 17-year-old Aaron Trejo pled guilty to one count of murder and one count of feticide in the stabbing death of 17-year-old Brianna Ruslang, who was six months pregnant at the time of her murder. Trejo, who was believed to be the father of her unborn child, admitted in court that he had arranged to meet with the girl on December 8th 2018, to discuss her pregnancy. Angry that she had waited too long to obtain an abortion, Trejo stabbed Brianna to death. He then placed her body in a black plastic bag inside a dumpster and disposed of her cell phone and the murder weapon by throwing them in a river. An autopsy later concluded that her scarf was tied so tightly around her neck that strangulation occurred before she died from multiple stab wounds. Trejo will be sentenced in January and could face a maximum of more than 80 years in prison. A South Carolina man is being held without bond on two sets of kidnapping and sexual assault charges stemming from two separate incidents dating back to 2015. Registered sex offender Dennis Glenn Slayton, 61, is accused in an August 8th incident where he allegedly offered a ride to a woman and then held her at knife point and drove her to his home where he sexually assaulted her and threatened to kill her. During that assault, the woman was able to escape from Slayton by severing his penis. She then stabbed him in the buttocks and fled, running from house to house, seeking help before finally arriving at a Waffle House half a mile away. Responding police officers then located Slayton at home, covered in blood. He was taken to the hospital and underwent surgery, then was arrested and charged with kidnapping and sexual assault. Though Slayton is a registered sex offender, with an extensive record of violent crimes dating back more than four decades, he was released on $75,000 bond. He was arrested again in October for violating the terms of his release, And then at a third bond hearing, he was charged with a 2015 kidnapping and sexual assault that bears many similarities to the more recent attack. This time, Slayton was denied bond. A grandfather has been charged with negligent homicide for the death of his 18-month-old granddaughter, who fell more than 10 stories to her death from a cruise ship last July. Salvatore Anello lifted his young granddaughter into a railing in front of a wall of glass windows on the Freedom of the Seas cruise ship as it was docked in San Juan, Puerto Rico. One of those windows was open and the toddler slipped from his grasp and fell 115 feet to her death. The child's distraught family calls the incident a tragic accident and places the blame on Royal Caribbean, operators of the cruise ship for leaving the window open in a children's play area. An attorney for the family called the charges unfair and unnecessary and said they are like pouring salt on the open wounds of a grieving family. Anello was released on $80,000 bond and is due back in court in late November. Those were your true crime headlines. Next, the story of the Beast of Bastille. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of the Beast of Bastille. Pascal Escoffet chose her outfit carefully on January 24, 1991. She wanted to look nice for her job interview at an ice cream parlor in Paris, hoping to work part time at the shop, leaving time for classes and homework at Sorbonne University, where she was studying French literature. Her father, Jean-Pierre Escoffet, described her as a very charming and very handy girl in the documentary Serial Killers. Because of such a killer, he wouldn't see Pascal alive again after that day. A hunter was lurking in the dark underbelly of the City of Lights, watching her, studying her from a café. He observed her long blonde hair sway with her confident steps before making his move, He stood, moved closer and closer, trailing her from a short distance. He followed her all the way to her apartment building, then forced her inside at knife point, bound her hands with tape, and cut her clothing off with the weapon before raping her. While she laid there, bound and brutalized, he looted her flat, stealing whatever he found valuable, then suffocated her. But not before Pascal gave him a harsh kick. He forced her down on her bed and sliced her throat then he cracked open a cold beer from her refrigerator and gulped it down before leaving with her belongings in the wee hours of the next morning pascal's father received the kind of call no parent or loved one should ever have to experience your daughter has been murdered when pascal was killed he told documentarians The first phase was very, very tough. I was like, how do you say, an ostrich with his head in the sand. What no one knew at the time was that this was the first murder by this hunter, and it would be far from the last. The following month, police had no viable leads or evidence that would connect Pascal's rape and murder with anyone in particular. Zero suspects. They felt they had little choice but to wait and see if the perpetrator would strike again. But no crimes with an obvious link were reported, first for weeks, then months, then what turned out to be three years. Then in early January 1994, 27-year-old Catherine Rocha was locking her car in a parking lot in her neighborhood when a man approached her from behind, brandishing a hunting knife. He then forced her into the car, sliced her clothes off, and raped her. When he was done, he fatally stabbed her. He didn't even attempt to hide Catherine's body, instead dumping it on a nearby sidewalk before walking away. When investigators found Catherine's remains the next day, they scoured the area for evidence, the most valuable being the body itself. How the hunter treated it was the most telling. He had cut her neck and stabbed her in the chest, choosing puncture spots that would cause the most bleeding. These details and the brutal nature of the violence between Pascal and Catherine's attacks were markedly similar, but at first, investigators didn't connect the two cases, largely because so much time had passed. And nine months later, in November of 1994, the hunter struck again. Much like his other victims, 22-year-old Elsa Benedi was vivacious and conventionally pretty, often beaming a bright smile. After visiting her mother to say goodbye before her mom left for Canada, the killer stalked her to her car. He asked her a benign question, do you have the time, before forcing his way into her car. He raped and murdered her, exactly as he had brutalized and killed Pascal and Catherine. Investigators linked Catherine and Elsa's murders straight away. In addition to the similar violence and causes of death, both incidents took place inside parked cars, unlike Pascal's murder, which happened in her apartment. But still, they had no leads. Just one month later, the hunter struck again, taking the life of 33-year-old Dutch architect Agnes Niekamp. He followed her to her second-floor apartment, where he raped and killed her. This time, rather than using a condom as he had during the other rapes, he had gone bare, leaving behind semen. Now police had DNA evidence. Sadly, heavy government restrictions kept it from being terribly useful. Someone could be convicted based on DNA at that time in France, but the evidence couldn't be used to link one crime to the others. There was no DNA database to compare the sample to. Now there were two rape and murders in apartments and two in cars. Investigators thought they needed to catch two separate perpetrators, so they established one team for each, hoping to catch both men before they struck again, not yet realizing they were one and the same. The next victim survived the hunter's grasp, providing the first witness for the case. Elizabeth Ortega, a 23-year-old hospital nurse, called police after escaping him. She told detectives that the man had asked her for a cigarette. After she gave him one, he forced her into her flat at knife point. She described the weapon as, quote, the sort of knife you'd use to debone a leg of lamb. He tied her to her bed, but she broke free and jumped out of a window. Detectives figured he was one of the men they had been searching for, the one who had hunted women down, then raped and killed them in their apartments. Elizabeth tried to give police a helpful description of the man, but still shocked and traumatized. She had difficulty coming up with an accurate description. Trauma can have that effect on the brain, protecting a survivor from certain details. She did her best, though, approximating an age of around 25, and said he had an oval face, fine features, and olive skin. Computers produced an image based on her recollection, but it looked a little like the killer— who continued to walk the streets of Paris, hunting down spirited young women. In July of 1995, just one month after Elizabeth's assault, the man chose another victim. Keeping to his pattern, he followed 27-year-old Eline Franking to her flat, where he sexually assaulted and killed her. Having grown less careful, he left behind more DNA evidence. More semen was found at the scene. Breaking standard protocol in the area, detectives ordered an analysis to compare the sample to others they had in storage, two from semen and one from a cigarette butt discovered at murder scenes. Dr. Olivier Pascal analyzed the samples, finding that they shared the same genetic profile. All three matched, conclusively showing three of the women were attacked by the same person. Paris officially had a serial killer in their midst, not two murderers, one attacking women in cars and another in apartments. They called him the Beast of Bastille, named after the area he stalked many victims. News about the Beast spread fast, making headlines and fueling terror, not only in Paris but throughout France. Women were afraid to walk the city streets alone, especially at night the case seemed urgent enough for authorities to call on Judge Gilbert Thiel for help. The French magistrate is known for preserving public tranquility, something the region could use in huge supply at the time. If they didn't catch this killer, more young women would undoubtedly die. They needed to not only find the guy responsible for these heinous crimes, but gather enough definitive evidence to convict him. When three months passed without another of the beast's murders, detectives wondered if the man had been locked up for another crime. They started searching prison records and psychiatric hospitals throughout Paris for anyone who seemed like they could be the same person. At first, there were no obvious fits. But then detectives who'd worked on the car murder team came upon records for a man named Guy Georges, a man with a history of violence and burglary. When they pulled George out for questioning, he agreed to provide them with a blood sample. Scientists compared it to a tiny blood sample found at one of the murder scenes, but it didn't match. Four years later, the investigation seemed to have gone nowhere. Meanwhile, the beast continued wandering the streets and raped and killed two more women. 19-year-old Magali Saroti, and 25-year-old Estelle Mogd. Their clothing slashed off with a knife, their hands bound. Judge Thiel ordered that all of the crime labs share information, so that the killer could finally be caught. While this was controversial by city standards, he felt it was the only way to put an end to these atrocities. Dr. Pascal collected and studied over 3,500 DNA samples, comparing them to evidence from the murder scenes. Finally, in late March of 1998, seven years since the beast's first murder, the killer had a name. He was Guy Georges, sometimes pronounced Guy Georges by Westerners, the man who had voluntarily given his DNA through a blood sample several years before. Devastatingly, they hadn't thought to compare the sample to blood particles from the other apartment murder scenes back then. Partly because those cases and the car attacks had been approached and archived as separate cases. Had they compared those samples at the time, they could have caught the killer nearly three years earlier. Investigators, DNA analysts, and surely above all, loved ones of the most recent murder victims, people who knew Magalie and Estelle, were devastated While now they could prevent additional murders, no one could ever reclaim those abbreviated lives. Police director Martine Monte gathered all of the individuals who'd been investigating the case to catch the Paris serial killer, with the help of the rest of the police force. Thousands of photos of the man were pulled and distributed across the country, because he had led a vagabond lifestyle, staying in various squats and shelters, they had no way of knowing where he'd be. Police records described the killer as age 38, Afro-European, well-built, and physically vigorous. He was tidy and clean, they said, shy, and had an IQ of 101 with above-average verbal skills. Investigators searched places the man had frequented, the countryside, everywhere. If he knew he was the one being hunted for once, he'd probably run or hide. Finally, he was spotted exiting a metro station in northwestern Paris. Two investigators grabbed him, certain they had the right man. He had a knife with him, but didn't attempt to use it, offering little resistance during the arrest. At the criminal brigade, investigators gathered together to get a look at the man they had sought for years— During an interrogation, Georges confessed, but to only two of the murders. He described the crime scenes accurately, further confirming his guilt. In a session with psychiatrist Dr. Daniel Zegary, the Beast said that killing gave him a sense of powerfulness, adding in English, At that moment, I was the boss. Many people expected an obvious monster to appear on the stand at his trial, which started in late March 2001. Someone arrogant and indomitable. Instead, he seemed charismatic. People described him as good-looking, someone with a sort of charm. Footage from the first day in court shows a man sporting a cunning smile. At the start of the trial, he withdrew his confession, claiming he hadn't murdered anyone. Cameras were turned off when he gave his first statement. The evidence in this case has nothing to do with me. This was all part of the game he chose to play, according to Dr. Zagary. In front of victims' loved ones, he toyed with their broken hearts. When the psychiatrist was called to describe the killer's character, he spoke of childhood violence, abandonment, and extreme suffering that drove Georges' deep urges for control. He became the abuser and worse, turning his wounds into omnipotence. The Guardian reported that his mother, Aline, ironically the name of one of his victims, left him to state custody when he was six so she could marry a U.S. serviceman and emigrate to California. Another psychiatrist on a team of selected analysts said George needed to, quote, feed on the energy and vital force of those who submitted to his power. What was unbearable for him was the other person's successful life, which reflected his own feelings of frustration and failure. The victims, the psychiatrist determined, existed, quote, only as objects to support his perverse attempts to appropriate their inner qualities. In a psychiatric report, they explored how Georges used his knife in a surgical sense of the term to cut away clothes and underclothes before raping women and slitting their throats. Bizarrely, where other women in his life were concerned, Georges was reportedly protective, according to Guardian reporter Paul Webster, whose daughter Claire knew Georges. She said he had many girlfriends, including a woman named Sadrine, who said he frequently made love to her and talked about his wishes to start a family. Each day of the trial centered on one victim. When Pascal Escofay's case was explored, her father refused to look at the crime scene evidence, preferring to remember his daughter as the bright light she was. She would not be defined by the torturous crime that took her. On the trial day that focused on Elsa Benedetti's murder, her mother was horrified by the killer's behavior on the stand. She told reporters he looked at photos from the crime scenes as though he were looking at any random photographs. No empathy or remorse or even expression, just blank. Elsa's mother asked to talk directly to the beast. Did you love your mother, she asked him according to court records, given what the defense stated about his abandonment issues. In front of you, she went on, you have the mothers of your victims. Georges responded, yeah, it must be really hard. Given the overwhelming evidence against him, the second week of the trial, Georges' attorneys persuaded him to change his plea to guilty. In a Telegraph article published the next day, journalist Patrick Bishop said Georges was defeated and weeping, as his lawyers read the seven women's names. Pascal Escoffet, Catherine Rocher, Elsa Benedi, Agnes Niekamp, Eline Franking, Magali Saroti, and Estelle Mogd. After each name, a lawyer said, Did you kill her? And Georges replied in French, Yes. On April 5, 2001, the Beast of Bastille, was sentenced to life in prison with a possibility for parole after 22 years. While this was the maximum sentence, many people, particularly the victim's parents, believed the law should be changed to prevent him, and others like him, to ever walk freely again. Would he be granted parole? Probably not, but even allowing him the chance seemed unfathomable. What if he used his charm in prison while he was away from young women to present a changed man and good behavior? What if he did get out? Since the first murder, he had struck again whenever he wasn't behind bars for other crimes. The case did expose the need for a national DNA database, which was instilled in 1998, no doubt saving lives and preventing additional crimes. During his confessions... When asked why he voluntarily gave a blood sample to authorities for DNA testing, Georges said, quote, Because I wanted them to stop me. He had tears in his eyes as he accepted his guilt and asked the families for forgiveness. Considering he's been diagnosed by experts as a narcissistic psychopath, one has to wonder why he wanted to be stopped, or if that response and those tears were just parts of his game. This has been Murder Minute. For a true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. For exclusive content and early access, find the show on Himalaya.